<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And a lot in the news, but Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. Congressman Pocan, of course, is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the state of Wisconsin and the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. It's great having you. Back when the transcript or the, uh, the, the note, summary or the, yeah, the notes, yeah, yeah, whatever, from Trump's call with Ukrainian President Zelensky came out, I pointed out the ellipses in there. I think you caught them too. And and we, in fact, we were talking on the air about you know it looks like there's something deleted from this. Uh, we learned a little more about this yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, you know, that very first day, Tom, we kept going back, and I think there were three sets of ellipses in there, and you kept saying, oh, there's something definitely missing from here, and most people in the media weren't quite picking up on that, and you immediately uh, were, and now I think we understand a little more about what those ellipses are, because, again, that was just notes. It was not a transcript. president now is trying to call it a transcript. He's trying to, once again, in a very... 1984 animal farm sort of sense changed everything that ever happened. And in this particular case, he's saying that was a transcript, but we're finding out from Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who just came in and provided deposition, that there was more said specifically about the Bidens and specifically both from President Trump and the president of the Ukraine. And of course, that's not mentioned in the call. And the fact that no one has brought that up to this point clearly means they didn't want it brought up. And we have someone now who's directly heard the call and saying he tried to have the notes changed and that they uh, didn't do that. So I think this is one of the bigger smoking guns uh, we have seen yet in really providing us a lot more clarity. Yeah, this is kind of a smoking howitzer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, huge. It's huge, yeah. right? Um, it's someone who heard the call, because up to this point, uh, President Trump's been saying it's all hearsay. This is someone who actually heard it, and then he sent his his uh, you know guns uh, around the country to, to try to take this guy down, including, unfortunately, former Congressman Sean Duffy from Wisconsin, who uh, totally embarrassed himself on CNN by claiming that he was actually loyal to Ukraine because he was born there as opposed to the U.S. in which he's a lieutenant colonel. Um, I found that one of the more despicable acts on behalf of the president in the last few days. Yeah. Well, this is like the way that they go after George Soros. You know, he's a Jewish immigrant from another country, and therefore, actually, I haven't seen specific instances of anti-Semitism directed in his uh, in his direction. I shouldn't shouldn't probably go full on with that, but it certainly seems that way to me. It's 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 very troubling. Well, Sean Duffy went right to where he was born, even though I think he was there till he was two. But right. he's been a uh, you know a lieutenant colonel in. Uh, the U.S. and he's been, you know, highly respected. And then for them to attack a uniformed officer by someone like Sean Duffy, who I think his service was in the real world on MTV, certainly doesn't compare. Yeah. How are your colleagues in the House? What are you anticipating? How, how are you anticipating this will play out? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We had a Dem leader meeting today to talk about the vote that we're going to have tomorrow, and no one raised any questions, which I think is where people are at anyway. I mean, so much evidence has come. We know the inquiry, you know, if this helps get some standing, uh, and this takes away any excuse the White House has for not cooperating, they're just going to find a new excuse, I'm quite sure. But let's go ahead and do this. I don't think it was necessary, but I think it does help us in some ways. So we're going to take the vote. The question will be, you know, will any Republicans come forward and say, yeah, an inquiry is reasonable or not. 
And do we have any DEM defections? I don't have a good answer on that yet. I doubt would have many, if any. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get to our phone calls. Uh, sure. People are calling in. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. You are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. I just want to voice my frustration with the way the Democrats put out their message. It just seems that you, you, well, no, let me say this. The Republicans have Frank, what's his name? Luntz. Luntz, yeah. He keeps them on cue. They all say the same phrases whenever they get before a camera and you hear it over and over and over. Now, the Republicans are talking about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the Ukraine. So why aren't the Democrats saying every chance they get in front of a microphone, why don't they talk about Jared Kushner and the millions of dollars that he got from Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or whatever it was he got that money from and all of the patents that uh, Ivanka has gotten since he's become president. You all should be putting that out there constantly, every other word. But it makes it seem like, you know, it's... I don't know. It's, it's just so frustrating. You have to speak in language that people can understand. You know, short, succinct statements, bumper sticker statements, things that people can remember, like President Obama. Yes, we can. I mean, you lose people after you say, you use a compound sentence, you've lost people. Because that just isn't the way people communicate. But you Democrats will get up there in front of the mic and you go on in full paragraphs and everybody's got their... Stick to a few points. Keep them out there constantly. And that's how you beat the Republicans at their own. They are good at that. Yeah. Joan, let's let the congressman answer. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and by the way, is there any... If I may add to Joan's question, is there yeah. is there any talk about investigating... I mean, if President Obama's wife, his daughters are too young, but if his wife had gotten patents from China while he was negotiating trade deals, the Republicans would have opened a congressional inquiry the next day. Uh, is anybody in Congress and the House of Representatives talking about opening an inquiry into Ivanka's patents, into Jared's billion dollars and the, and the apparent shakedown of Qatar, you know, when the Saudis blockaded them and all that? I mean, there's, there's stuff laying all over the ground here. To your question, first time, there's six committees who have oversight, and I'm not on one of those, and uh, they're all doing multiple investigations at all times, so I can't tell you specifically on that front. To Joan's question, I, I think uh, there's part I agree with strongly and part I disagree with strongly. Joan, the part I agree with you is, Frank Luntz, you're right, Republicans, because they don't have a lot of original thought, are really good at repeating what they're told. I remember one time Scott Walker, when he was preparing for a debate, Someone gave him a fact, and he said, is that true? And the person said, and this was like behind scenes, and said, well, yeah, I think it is, but just go with it. He goes, no, 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 if you tell me something, I'm going to remember it and repeat it, so it's got to be true. Like, they don't put thought into what they say, so they're really good at repeating what they're told, and they are very disciplined, and I think Democrats could have more discipline. Where I disagree, Joan, is if we get lost on what the Republicans want to talk about, we aren't talking about what we need to talk about. Right now, they're on process. And they are on uh, things like uh, Biden, which has already been disproved multiple times. We're trying to talk about things like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman saying you're missing information in your call that you've already admitted you broke the law on. And here's even more reason. We have to keep on the main issue, which is the impeachable offense. And I think that's where I wish Democrats were more disciplined, that we would just keep our uh, attention on what we're working on rather than letting us get distracted every time the Republicans put up a false narrative which I think clearly uh, the information about Biden is a false narrative, and I think the process is a false narrative. So you're right, Joan. Republicans, because they're not exactly thinkers, are good at repeating things that they're told to do. But I do think we should stick to the big picture, and the big picture right now is on impeachment, and there certainly are plenty of big issues around that. Robbie in Portland, Oregon, listening on X-Ray FM. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I just wanted to ask if anything being done about the information from the whistleblower reality winner who is arrested now and facing the longest sentence for releasing to the American public facts that not only Russia, but six other countries hacked and compromised voting machines in 20 or 25 different states. 
so Robbie, I know that that was going back to the Mueller report, right? And we had information at that point about it. And I know that judiciary, I believe, was the main committee doing that. But again, there are six committees that essentially have oversight in this area. And I can't tell you what each one is doing other than when I see the hearings they're doing. Uh, they're covering a lot of different turf. Obviously, the majority of the attention right now is on the Intelligence Committee, specifically around the call with the Ukrainian president. But um, I know that that was all mentioned initially in the first 180 pages of the Mueller report, talking about the hacking of companies that make voting machines, which is why a lot of us want to have paper ballots so we can actually have a verifiable recount with every single vote. Tom, listening on 9:10 a.m. in San Francisco, or San Bruno, actually. Tom, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I'm very, uh, was very uh, shocked and uh, about the Katie Hill having to resign. I went down three times last year to campaign for her from the Bay Area, and she was such a great, great my uh, military service for being a 20-year more, you know, 20, being in the Guard and Reserve and working full time. I told her why I was doing it, and I walked with other people, volunteers, all over neighborhoods for the each visit I was down. And then my paying paying for the train fare and the hotels. I need to get out of the house and the work. And when she got elected, that was the most terrific thing and elated. And I felt, hey, we have a chance to really turn things around. And for her husband, decide to get vengeful and it gets picked up and weaponized. And I don't think she should have ran. I heard a little bit of it. It did drop off on my end as well. But, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. And clearly what has transpired, I can't imagine what everyone is going through on this right now. It's, I don't really have much to say to, to Tom other than we're going to have another election soon. I think that district is more Democratic than it had been. And I think we can hold the seat and you're going to have, it looks like a variety of candidates in that race, including someone that's come from the Trump world that apparently tweeted out about what happened the day before, which I think certainly provide some questions about how closely her ex-husband and Republican operatives were working. Hopefully that's something the district looks at as well, because that was, I think, pretty disgusting. Yeah. Carol in Philadelphia, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. A few weeks ago, maybe a month now, I caught on C-SPAN at Trump, uh, I don't know, it looked like a rally, but it was something in Florida to seniors. And he said that he was going to sign an executive order of some type to fix Medicare. And I'm wondering, it couldn't be good, whatever he was doing. What is that? What happened? And how can Congress fix it? Um, I can't speak to it offhand. I, you know, Donald Trump says a lot of things and what he does and what he says often have no relationship to each other. So I don't have a great answer. I know that, you know, we've watched Paul Ryan when he was speaker and the Republicans do everything they can to cut Medicare and Social Security. And we've had a fight long and hard when they were in charge of everything. Now the Democrats are in charge of the House. Nothing bad will happen on that side legislatively because we're not going to let it. In fact, John Larson from Connecticut has some bills to make Social Security uh, better because uh, it should be. But I, I couldn't answer your question offhand, Carol, because I just, I, I'm not sure what he said in a rally in Florida. David in Columbus, Ohio, listening to WGRN. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. This is about nuclear power. There's been proposals by Exelon and some other nuclear power companies to subsidize aging nuclear plants, which are very dangerous. And um, I think we should be switching away from these because they're not really productive and uh, they're the most expensive power system in the country. Why should we pay more? So uh, what's your opinion on that? So, David, and I hope I'm answering it, but I'm going to try to take it a little bit globally, is, you know, this is where I think the Green New Deal really comes in. Rather than this power plant here, this state's policies here, we have to have a very large infrastructure investment battle to take on climate change. And that includes heavily investing in especially research and development, but also other ways to activate solar, wind, biomass, all the types of renewable fuels that'll take us to a place that one, you'll still have a planet in the future, but two, that we're not relying on Mideast oil or other uh, fossil fuels, which we've been doing way too long. And I think, you know, there are some good things you need to look at when you know, you're looking at nuclear power as well, which which is why the more we can invest in these renewables that don't have the types of waste that you have to deal with, you're going to be better off. 
we have to really make this a priority at the 2020 campaign. So far, the commentators have not done that. I think we all got to put more pressure on the next Democratic debate to make this a bigger focus. But I think it's a bigger issue than any individual power plant upgrading. It's about what are we doing nationally to really make us more self-sustained and not have to rely either on fossil fuels or on things that produce toxic results. Has there been any movement on dealing with nuclear waste? I know this was a very contentious issue, particularly around Nevada and all that. Honestly, it becomes a, an issue because of Nevada specifically over and over finding a place to put it. But that's part of the problem, right? You have a, a pretty toxic byproduct from that power source that we do have to deal with if we're going to continue that power source. So at some point, if you we did find ways to invest more in sustainable types of power, you're not going to have to deal with those issues. I mean, I have eight and a half kilowatts on our roof, and I love it. As a believer in natural medicine, I'm one to shy away from surgery, especially cosmetic procedures. But Let's face it, we're all human and want to look good, and decades of hard work leaves its mark. I'm happy to tell you that there's a product that not only works, but also meets my non-invasive criteria. I'm talking about Plexiderm. It's derived from shale rock and visibly reduces under-eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet in minute, minutes. And no knives, no needles, and only naturally derived ingredients. Don't believe it? Try it for yourself. You'll see the results in minutes. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them, and the effects last for hours. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Don't be a victim of your skin any longer. Visit triplexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 800 685 1292. Rob in Mesa, Arizona, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. What's up, Rob? My biggest question, and I've called in before on this, is how is it that we're allowing people to ignore Savinas? I just want a, a good explanation of why we aren't pursuing throwing these guys in jail or at least finding them. So what is the mechanism or reason why we're not pursuing these people who ignore Congress? A few times now we've done it on the show, so I'll do it very, very quick. There are a number of hurdles from legal hurdles to depending what type of enforcement we try to do. We actually have to change rules. We actually have to appropriate funds to use the jail we have here. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things that sound great that how you can make them work, but they're not necessarily easily applied. One of the things we are doing specifically in the vote that we're doing tomorrow about the investigation is we're mentioning subpoenas and other ways that we're trying to get information and that will give us a speedier legal resolution to what we're trying to get done which is why we're taking the vote tomorrow but it's not as easy as you know if it were a novel uh, you have a subpoena they don't do it you throw them in jail it's not that easy in reality and i think there are some good resources you can find online that will explain it in a more detailed way why it doesn't work as easy as it doesn't it kind of boil down to two things? Number one, if you want to enforce a subpoena by going through the criminal process, in other words, you committed a crime by not doing it, you've, got to, go, you've got to go to Bill Barr right. and ask him to do it, and he's not doing anything. And on the other hand, if you're going to try and take it to court, Civilly. Um, the court process is just a slow process, period. Yeah. And then there's another thing. If you did, you want to use the jail, for example, and some other stuff, we have to change house rules and we have to appropriate funds. And we can't just appropriate funds without doing it. Right now, we were already past our September 30th deadline because the Senate's not doing anything. So everything that sounds easy isn't for a number of reasons. And I know there's some great resources online for people who want to see it more so, in depth. So, so you're saying if Congress wanted to have and use that jail in the basement where Lincoln's hearse is right now, right. if they wanted to do that, they would have to pass a, a, basically an appropriations bill saying we're appropriating 100,000 bucks to make sure that the bars are working and to hire a couple of guards. And then that would have to go to the Senate. Mitch McConnell would have to agree to it. It would have to survive a vote in both houses. And then it would have to go to the president for his signature. Is, is that what you're saying? Um, essentially, and that's how Jerry Nadler has presented it to us. And, you know, Jerry's a brilliant guy. And we had this question ourselves for months. I think about two months ago he came to us, maybe six weeks ago and presented why they're having such a hard time getting this done. It's not as easy as it sounds like. If it were a novel, it would be easy, but this is real life, and that's why it's not. 
However, the vote we're doing tomorrow will make it easier to get some court rulings quicker, and that's part of why we're taking the vote we're taking tomorrow. Cool. Okay. Rory in St. Petersburg, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, guys. Serious question. What if Donald Trump loses the 2020 election and refuses to leave the White House? I'm serious. Okay, because this guy can do this stuff. What do we do? Well, this What's is what Michael Cohen predicted. Democrats game plan. Thank you, Roy. I think a lot of this is hypothetical, and I could come up with lots of hypothetical, you know, that we're afraid what he could do. He might do a government shutdown. I mean, and everyone's looking at it, but until you know what he's going to do, I don't think that scenario is a very likely one. I do think that what we're finding right now, even though he's telling people not to come and talk to intelligence committee, people keep coming because there are still people who are patriots who are in the government, even if they are of the other political party. They are not maybe following the cult of Donald Trump like so many of the congressional Republicans are. I don't think that is an especially likely scenario, although I think we are thinking of every scenario that comes up along the way from government shutdown to the time of impeachment to uh, everything else in between. You know, we've been fighting this around the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is food stamps, for a long time. When I first got here, my first session, four sessions ago, I joined a number of folks in living on that SNAP budget, which was at the time thirty-one fifty a week. I bought a bag of oranges and that took 15% or actually more, almost 20% of my budget. You, know, you start going through what you had to live on and it was very, very, very little. And it's a number one program to keep kids from going hungry. And we've watched it go down. It's actually in real dollars less than it was four sessions ago, not just inflation dollars, real dollars, which is a problem. Fortunately, we're in the majority right now. I think we can avoid any future slippage and try to get additional assistance as we're trying. And we'll know more depending what happens with the Senate actions on the budget. 3150 was what it was. Now it's about 28 something, I believe, per person per week. I mean, think about it. That is not anything sustainable. And for the most part, the food you buy is not very healthy food. You buy cheap food. So you buy ramen noodles, which is not exactly on a pyramid food chart uh, for any kind of health. And yet that's the kind of food you can buy. And, uh, you know, this is something that we've been fighting since I've been in Congress with the Republicans. Yeah. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Congressman Pocan, given that. Criminal justice reform has been one of the very few recent areas of legislation that has seen some bipartisan cooperation. i got a two-part question for you. Number one, is there anything in the pipelines that is uh, moving in that direction currently? And part two, would you or your office be willing to receive some information from me, I recently litigated a case, held a jury trial, and proved a governmental probation drug testing lab had violated every every rule and, and law that it was beholden to while servicing several thousand probationers in their drug test specimens. I was able to demonstrate that they cheated, cut corners, violated New York State public health law, breached the contract with the municipality that was the probation department. Sure, Eric. Yeah, no, please share it. I'd be glad to receive that. And uh, specifically, I think your question was on the pipeline for criminal justice reform. You know, this is one where we do have, I think, potential where there's overlap among Republicans. Believe it or not, Grover Norquist, of all people, has a group called no, I'm going to forget the name of the group now, uh, but basically it's trying to get smarter on crime. For so long, we were just tough on crime, and they're realizing it's very expensive in the states, and they've allied with Democrats, and we have passed some measures. One, I think, at the very end of last session, this session, I know there's been some bipartisan support. The problem is the White House... While they talked a good game on this, now they have been less good. And I'm not sure if I can give you a likelihood on anything with Donald Trump right now, other than the good news is there is bipartisan support, at least in Congress, to move forward on some of these issues. I just don't know if I have an assessment of the White House uh, being willing to. And my concern about this was the mens rea thing, you know, state of mind. Yesterday, for example, the CEO of Boeing was being interrogated by members of Congress, and he knew or at least people under him knew, and apparently he knew, I'm, I haven't read the exact testimony, that it was possible that the system was taking down this airplane. And 
my understanding is that the whole reason why the Koch brothers and Grover Norquist were supporting the so-called criminal justice reform, it only applied to about 3,000 federal prisoners. It didn't, you know, that, that was it. The main reason that they were supporting it was because it introduced this concept of mens rea. In other words, he would have had to have somebody, he, he could not be held criminally or personally accountable for those 346 deaths the head of Boeing, unless somebody had come to him and said, you know, sir, if we continue to cover this up, in all probability, hundreds of people will die. And he said, hundreds of people dying is fine with me. That's my state of mind. In other words, mens rea is Latin for state of mind. If the state of mind of the CEO was not to intentionally kill people, then you can't hold them accountable. And that this is what the, the Koch brothers and Grover Norquist have been pushing. Are you familiar with that? Um, I couldn't tell you, no, the specific of that. I can tell you, I actually was, I saw a column Grover Norquist wrote four years ago, give or take, and I actually got on the phone with him. And I had an interesting 20-minute conversation after I heard about how impressive he was, um, quite honestly. Uh, after that, uh, we had a good talk about criminal justice reform in states, and he did a lot of work in Texas and other places that were more Republican-leaning. And I know that the reforms they did were actually pretty legitimate at the state legislative level. So I can't speak to the very issue you're yeah. bringing up. No, my, my, my concern is that they're giving away these things that don't cost them anything. Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, let's, let's have fewer people in prison for drugs. But yeah. in exchange for that, they want this get out of jail free card for CEOs and billionaires. Yeah. I couldn't speak to that exact provision. I can tell you, though, again, because I used to be the ranking uh, Democratic corrections from Wisconsin legislature, many of the reforms they put forward are pretty substantial. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Pocan, my question centers around the epidemic, uh, an epidemic which has its origins in the 80s under Reagan, but sadly has exploded after decades of neoliberalism, and that's the epidemic of homelessness and the dearth of affordable housing here in America. So my question is, A, I understand that the Faircloth Amendment uh, to the Fair Housing Act has restricted and capped the amount of public housing at the same level since October 1999. So for 20 years, we've had no net increase in public housing. And B, since the 2008 crash, apparently there's been a massive financialization of the rental market by Wall Street that's driven up rents and maybe created another housing, another bubble with rent-backed securities. What's your take on all this, Congressman Pocan? And do you think it would be possible to challenge Trump since he broached the subject to declare a national emergency regarding homelessness? I'm not sure, again, what Donald Trump would do to try to address that. Let me take it again at a 30,000-foot level. You point out a, a very strong problem that doesn't get a lot of attention, which is affordable housing, period. Even in places like Madison, Wisconsin, my district, very progressive areas, it's a real challenge, and it's becoming tougher and tougher. We have not done a whole lot nationally addressing this. So we recently have put a request to the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center, which is our 501c3 entity that works with the Progressive Caucus. And this is one of the issue areas we're asking them to do some research on. I know Earl Blumenauer has got a position paper. He knows this is something that needs to be addressed. Some other members are doing the same. But it has not got the attention of climate change, of criminal justice reform, of health care, and a lot of the other issues. And yet, it's a very, very real issue in, I think, across the country, uh, just about everywhere. So we are trying to figure out how to elevate that and work with some of the groups that already are working on these issues, a point that's, that's well taken that we need to address this. Adam in New Orleans, uh, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Coming at impeachment from a different direction. What does fantastic success look like for impeachment or the impeachment inquiry relative to the psychological warfare tactics that are being used to really keep half the people in the United States deluded by the GOP? What are we trying to do? And I haven't heard anyone articulate that. So I think there's a lot of people who look at this from a political lens. I think you've got to forget that. You can also talk about a political lens, but what we're doing right now is done in a constitutional lens. If you can't indict a sitting president and the only tool you have is impeachment and the president has broken the law, uh, we have no choice, even if it means a President Pence or someone else that may be even worse. If the president's broken the law, we are the only recourse per the Constitution to deal with it. So that's what I guess the success is, is that if someone has broken the law, they're held accountable, which is the impeachment process. Thank you, Roy. 
Maureen in Geneva, Illinois. You're on the Earth Congressman Pokin. Uh, yes, I'm calling about the subpoena thing. I think we should push it all the way. Don't use the Capitol Police. Go to the Washington, D.C. Police Department. Use the sheriff there to arrest them and keep them in the uh, local police department there. Or go to the county sheriff and have him do it. But push it all the way. Uh, actually have them arrested in Maureen, the all that takes a all of that takes a judge, and that's the problem. Yeah. That's what's slowing it down. Uh, Congressman? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, I understand people hear these things and are wondering why they're not happening. And we, we've tried to explain it, that it does have to go through the civil court process, which is very slow, which is why we're doing the vote that we're doing tomorrow to try to speed up some of the civil court process in general, including in getting information that we're trying to get. But I think people should really um, do a decent Google search and uh, find because there's some good arguments that are already laid out in articles that are out there that can explain it rather than uh, take another five minutes of time. Okay. You're listening to Tom Hartman. All countries talking about CBD oil. You should check it out from New Leaf Naturals. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without getting high right, from marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's really only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com, newleafnaturals.com, code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M, newleafnaturals.com. John in Sunland, California, you're on the Earth, Congressman Pocan. Yes, uh, I wanted to know what the congressman is going to do about all the lies that are being created on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And his state was one of the three states that were that were manipulated, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and, and, and gave him this election. So he also sponsored or was part of a bill to combat the cyber lies. How do you deal with that, sir, when Mitch McConnell is not moving on that bill? John, you pointed out a really good problem. We passed a bill last week, right, to try to get around some of this. I think we're continuing to have hearings to try to put pressure on places like Facebook and others that, you know, I guess Elizabeth Warren a lot of credit, put up a fake ad and said, come on, challenge you on it. And they're playing a little too cute by half. And we need a Senate to also act or we're going to need maybe some state by state laws to go after some of this as well. But, you know, the misinformation when you read the Mueller report that was put through these, don't forget, it wasn't just ads to try to create uh, diversions and to try to fight, have people fight against each other. It was actually creating rallies and other very concrete things that, that happened via these ads. And to hear Mark Zuckerberg and some of the other people address this as if it means nothing means all the more we got to push harder because uh, it will happen again without question. And we're going to have to address it far more directly than what the Senate's allowing it to happen. Richard in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I don't think that the Democrats get as much play on the media. Take an example of the uh, supposed secret meeting, which has been everywhere and repeated, and the Democrats respond to it, but they don't capture the news cycle. And this is not a good thing for this coming election. If the bold-faced lies, like we're told about that meeting, can stand in our media without pushback, you guys answer it, but you don't answer it like Republicans do. And I think we're losing the war. And I'm, I'm really afraid that when we go to Medicare or this uh, election cycle, that anything we propose is going to be drowned out 10 to 1 in our media because the Democrats aren't figuring out how to control the media like the Republicans have. And that's just a, not a good thing. And I think a lot of other people have talked to us uh, this today. Thank you, Richard. Sure. What, what secret meeting? I'm sorry. I'm he's, sure. he's talking about the Republican talking point that the impeachment hearings are being held in private. Yeah, this is where you don't want to just follow whatever they say, because that's when you're talking process, 
you're losing, right? And that's where they're at. That's why they're talking. That's all they got. They can't defend the president. So again, if we chase everything they want us to chase, we will lose. Instead, we need to be aggressive about what we're doing on impeachment and what he's done and how he's broke the law. And again, this week, a lot of really good concrete examples came out. Yeah. And in fact, the meetings are in private because the Department of Justice wouldn't authorize a special prosecutor, right? Like you had exactly. Star so last time. Yeah, since the Clinton and Nixon impeachment. So we don't have someone handing this information. We're collecting it. And many of these witnesses will go public. Honestly, I don't think Matt Gates is scoring a lot of points for them other than on Fox News. Yeah. OK. Congressman Bogan, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Today. Absolutely. Thank you. Congressman Rokana is with us. Congressman Khanna represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley area. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back to the program, and thanks so much for being with us. I, I saw a piece that John Nichols did in The Nation about basically you and your perspective on the situation in Syria. And I'm curious your thoughts on that and also how that might tie into the killing of Mr. Baghdadi last weekend. Sure, Tom. Well, first of all, great to be back on. I was uh, very concerned and remain concerned in the way we pulled out of Syria. I mean, I was for a responsible withdrawal of our troops. I thought our presence there hadn't been constitutionally authorized. But you don't just uh, intervene and then leave with no regard for the Kurdish population or the civilian population there. We could have gotten a deal with Erdogan had we tried. We didn't try. The fact that we sent Pence and Pompeo after our withdrawal says everything about the effort that was made. There was absolutely no regard for the Kurds who had fought with us or possibly providing humanitarian aid there. And so my view was that a withdrawal had to be responsible with an obligation to our Kurdish allies. And look, I mean, I'm glad we got Baghdadi. I give credit to our troops. But now Trump's saying that he wants to keep troops in Syria to protect the oil fields. Uh, it shows that there's no coherence to the policy. Well, isn't the major sales pitch that ISIS was making and al-Qaeda before that, that we were just coming to steal their natural resources? I mean, in 1998, Osama bin Laden was quoted in the New York Times as saying that he was contemplating striking the United States for two reasons. One, we had an Air Force base that Bush's father, uh, Bush the Elder, had put in Saudi Arabia to stage the first Iraq war. We had an Air Force base there where American soldiers were drinking alcohol and watching pornography and women were driving cars and showing their elbows. And number two, that we were exploiting, we were buying oil from Saudi Arabia for less than $100 a barrel, which is what he thought it should be priced at. And therefore, we were basically stealing their oil. That America is trying to steal our oil meme was the main thing that animated al-Qaeda up to 9-11, after 9-11, and that ISIS has been waving around saying, you know, these guys just came here to steal our oil. And then Trump goes on TV last week and says, yeah, we're going to take their oil and, we're, and we're, I'm going to decide what to do with it. I mean, isn't this just playing into their hands? It is playing into their hands. I mean, on the one hand, the president saying, OK, I want to withdraw our troops from the Middle East, not get us into these endless wars. He's got Democrats in Congress saying, OK, let's do that. Let's do it responsibly. And then the same breath in which he's announcing Baghdadi's killing, he's saying, well, we're going to have our troops there to monitor the Syrian oil fields and try to get oil out of the Middle East, which is not even necessary in America's interests anymore. I mean, we're not dependent on that oil. I think this is why the policy is completely incoherent. Yeah, I get trying to prevent ISIS from seizing an oil field and profiting off it. I get that. But saying we're going to take the oil, we're going to decide what to do with the spoils of war and all that kind of that, that seems nuts to me. Anyhow, let, shall we pick up some phone calls here? Let's do it. Joe in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Right. I wanted to ask a question about why the Democrats aren't doing a much better job of narrating the impeachment story regarding Donald Trump. And what I mean is there's a strong narrative that the Democrats aren't putting together. And what it is, is that Trump conspired with Russia to mitigate in our elections. He paid Stormy Daniels hush money to his lawyer. He obstructed the investigations that were conducted by Mueller and that are being conducted by Congress. He has denied that Russia interfered with our election in spite of all the intelligence and congressional Senate investigations saying otherwise. And then he has obstructed, he 
illegally held back money appropriated to Ukraine in order to get them to make allegations about Biden and to claim there might be some fantasy computer in Ukraine that doesn't exist that somehow exonerates Russia from mitigating in our elections. Why can't the Democrats just state those things very clearly the whole process? Joe, I I appreciate that. You gave a great summary. We're trying to do that. We try to make those points over and over again, and we've been hammering, in particular, the point about Ukraine and how he basically was forcing Zelensky to announce a public investigation against Biden. We've emphasized in the past the obstruction of justice, the fact that he was trying to conceal the Russian interference. The challenge is that there's an element of the Republican Party and Republican base that does not want to hear the facts. I take your suggestions constructively, and we'll try to continue to get that narrative out there. I think the word cover-up needs to be used in every other sentence. I saw Adam Schiff on TV, yeah. and he was describing a cover-up. You know, he was talking about how Trump was not allowing members of his administration to come and, and testify. That's a cover-up. And I kept yelling at the team, just say cover-up, cover-up, come on, this is a cover-up. You know? And I, I think it goes to partly what... Joe was talking about, I mean, I think we can use simpler words. President admitted, <laughs> president covered up, president digging dirt, and sometimes sometimes yeah. we can get a little too Bribery, nuanced. Bribery, shakedown, yeah, absolutely. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with your congressman. Congressman, I saw you on MSNBC over the weekend. I thought that was, well, how should I say, it? sitting in the green room must be interesting there. First of all, let me just say, I really am sorry to hear about John Conyers. Rest in peace. He was a very great man. I wish he I could was. live that long. What can Congress do to help shift the electrical grid from coal, fossil fuel, and nuclear power to renewable energy production at the local source? I mean, if I buy a solar panel for my house right now, apparently it was going to be fed to PG&E. I just want to keep the power in a bank system at my house. And in the future, up here in my friends in the Northern California, where I live, who are experiencing now for the third time, my sister lost her house in the tubs fire. They can't rebuild because can't get fire insurance. I want to put solar panels on the house, keep the batteries there, don't need the wires. I can't afford to bail PG&E out. PG&E and Southern California Edison both have large liabilities as far as nuclear power. San Onofre's closed. I was hoping that we could use something like what was in the 1930s, the Rural Electrification Fund, to help get the federal government. Joe, we got to toss this to to Congressman Conner. That's your question? What can we do? Okay. Congressman? Joe, I appreciate the question. I mean, we should be extending the solar tax credit so people like you can be able to afford solar panels. And we need to have massive investment in solar farms. We need to encourage local renewable energy sources so people aren't just dependent on PG&E. The reality is we know exactly what we need to do. The question is, is this country willing to make the commitment and the investment to move towards solar and a renewable energy future? Yeah, and that's really the question of the day of our era. And you can tweet him at Rep, R-E-P, as in Representative Roe, R-O, Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A. Rep Roe Kana. Lou, watching Free Speech TV in Pueblo, Colorado. Lou, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, good morning. Hey, Roe, I'm a supporter. I appreciate everything you do as well as Tom. My comment has a question has to do with can we restructure the tax laws? When utilities were regulated monopolies, uh, maintenance was an expense they could deduct. Today, it's an expense they can't deduct. All we need to do is change the tax laws to make it made for hurricanes as well as fires. Okay, your phone faded out a little bit there, Lou, but Congressman, I, I would be astonished if maintenance was a non-deductible expense to a for-profit corporation. Do you know anything about that? Well, I think it is an exp- uh, expense that you can deduct uh, based on capital expenditure or, de- uh, or depreciation, and that maintenance is, is something that you can deduct. I mean, my let me tell you, the problem in the utilities in our home state, in my home state of California, you have PG&E that has been totally unregulated, that is going bankrupt to the point where they're having to, uh, to, to turn off people's power, and I think they should have been a public utility and broken up probably years ago, and we need to encourage more local renewable energy sources, more municipal public utilities. Okay. Skip in Seattle, listening on KBCS. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good morning, Congressman and Tom, a longtime listener. I want to offer another take on this al-Baghdadi assassination. 
we take great pride in having a high road system of justice in this country. We thump on our chests about the right to confront our accusers, the right to vigorous defense, a whole host of things that we think we're great about. And yet we tolerate vigilante justice through surrogates by our president. What's the difference between Trump and the guy he brags about taking out by somebody's hands other than his own? Who's the real criminal? Who, who's the real bully? Who's the real whimpering dog in a tunnel? It's, so, it's our own president. So your objection is to vigilante to justice, Skip. Let's let the congressman respond. Well, Skip, I disagree with you with, with your respect. I mean, I think al-Baghdadi was a terrible, terrible uh, terrorist who was the head of ISIS, uh, who was responsible for presiding over rape and violence. And there's no way that in foreign policy that you can afford terrorists the same kind of due process protections as you do within the United States. So I have no problem with the order to kill him, and I salute our troops for doing that. What about, Congressman, I'm curious your thoughts on Trump doing his, you know, he died like a dog. He was, you know, all that kind of stuff. Is, do you think well, that's... That, that, is, that is just gratuitous and, and, and is the type of rhetoric that uh, makes us more vulnerable. I mean, it's one thing to uh, take out a, a terrorist uh, leader. It's another thing to try to gloat over it, which then becomes a recruitment tool for these terrorists. And that's, that's the sad thing. I mean, here you are. You've ordered an operation. The operation is successful. It takes out a terrorist. You could just be precise about that. Instead, you're talking about Americans, troops uh, taking over oil fields. You're talking about how this person died with a dog. I mean, even when there is something successful on his watch, he can't help but make a mockery of it. Yeah, yeah. He's so crass. Congressman Rokana on the line taking your calls. And Lamont in Indianapolis, Indiana. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, um, oh, good afternoon, Tom and Congressman. The question that I have is, is that here in, I'm here in Indiana, and I've seen as being run by Donald Trump for 2020, why isn't the Democratic Party, and maybe you can get it back to them, running ads against him already? Even though we don't have a nominee, you have enough information and clips and Twitters and quotes and everything about all the stuff he's lied about. You know, you guys run... You know, where he said he didn't know anything about the payments and where he admitted to it. Is there any way you can relay that to your fellow Democrats, progressives, that they need to start putting out ads across the country? Because I have no problem with any of our nominees, maybe except one. But any one of them, I would take over him, except maybe that one. And you guys should be running ads against him in general. Thank you, Lamont. Well, Lamont, I agree with you that we need to be campaigning against him. Uh, the problem is resources. I mean, right now, the president has a huge advantage. Uh, almost every incumbent president does, but this president particularly, you know, he's got over a $100 million war chest. Our DNC, Democratic National Committee, doesn't have that kind of resources, and the candidates are just using their resources limited to win the nomination. This is why, as soon as we do have a nominee, we need to do everything possible to unite behind them and get them the resources that they need to be able to, to do exactly what you're saying. Tom in Boulder, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Do we have any chance of doing away with daylight savings time ever? <laughs> you're incredible. singing my song, Tom. Congressman? Tom, you know, my wife, I'm kidding you not, she just asked me the same question this weekend, and she yeah. said, you guys can't do anything in Congress. Can't you just get rid of the daylight savings? I mean, can you not even do that or something? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm actually on a bill that would get rid of it. Tom, I don't know if you, I couldn't answer this question, but what was the rationale originally for daylight savings? I don't know if you know. It, it, the rationale was that you'd have more, part of the way it was sold was kids will be at less risk because they'll be going to school in the light instead of the dark and workers will, you know, there was something about workers. But it turns out there was a really great article about this last year in one of the, you know, like the Atlantic or the New Yorker in one of those magazines that does like long form in-depth reporting. And it turns out that the two guys who came up with this idea and pitched it to the politicians who put it into policy were avid golfers. And they wanted to have an extra hour on the golf course after work or before work or whatever it was. And it turns out that's why it was put into the law. So, and, and we know now from the research that people are actually dying because of it. I mean, every year there's a spike in car accident deaths and heart attacks in the two or three weeks that follows the change to and from daylight savings time. 
And why is that? What's causing the... Uh, uh, you're having car accidents because people are sleepy because they're not sleeping the right hours. They're basically yep. experiencing jet lag. And people who are, you know, who have a weak heart or who have, you know, metabolic right. disorders and things, it's the same uh, dangers that are associated with jet lag, basically. Well, look, I bought a bill that actually Marco Rubio has sponsored to eliminate it. And uh, Canson Chu in California is trying to eliminate it on a statewide basis. But, you know, from my perspective, I don't see the logic of why we have it. The question is, can it get more traction? It's, uh, you know, we just need to educate more people in Congress to pay attention to the issue. Yeah, I think so. And then step two would be to do what China has done, which is put the whole country in one time zone and uh, or get the entire world in one time zone. But that's that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Congressman Ro Khanna uh, with us uh, taking your calls. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A. House.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Robert in Santa Maria, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Quick one, please. Morning. California seems to be burning down as every year it does. And I'm wondering when we can finally get a set of fire planes like the 747s converted over to running on water and actually get five or ten planes and make it rain and put a fire out in a day. This would help stop global warming, stop all the trash and pollution going down into the streams, into the oceans, stop people from dying and people losing their houses. Thank you, Robert. Well, Robert, I'm open to other solutions in terms of more water to fight fires, but we've had systematic mismanagement in California where a lot of the brush hasn't been cleared that should have been cleared that has led to the catastrophe. PG&E and some of the utilities have not invested in the smart grid, and that's led to the electrical outages. I would argue that we need to have the entire PG&E, instead of being bankrupt, become a public utility, break it up, uh, focus on having more municipal sources of utility. So, there's a lot of things that need to change for the way California's electricity system works and their force management has worked. Congressman, thanks again so much for being with us today. It's great having you on. Tom, it's always a great pleasure. My, uh, the pleasure is mine. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna uh, of the 17th District of California, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus's website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. PJ in Burnham, Illinois. Hey, PJ, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Inflation. I'm on Social Security. Uh, Social Security raises are dependent upon inflation. Seven years of Social Security I've been on, and the increase in payment has been in the single digits. Uh While food, cans, potatoes, bags of stuff have decreased in size and remain the same price. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is there any inflation going on in the United States? Depends on where you look. There are some things, there are some areas where prices are going down. There are some areas where prices are going up. And this is deflation is the thing that all the economists are scared of is, you know, prices actually start going into negative territory. That's what happened in, in 1929 was massive deflation. And that's what started to happen in 2008 when the crash happened. Well, and the other, the other side of it, when you were talking about uh, uh, ballooning the budget, the national debt, the debt, they want to go after Social Security. Yeah, that's the whole point. You know, they, you know, if they can get Democrats to go along with cutting Social Security, which they've done twice now, you know, I mean, you know, and Barack Obama almost did. Remember, he was supporting the change CPI, which would have cut the, 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 the COLAs, the cost of living adjustments, would have cut the increases in Social Security. And he came out and said, yeah, the Republicans have been leaning on me really hard about this. And some of the conservative Democrats, that's the Democrats who are taking money from the Wall Street banks. The Wall Street banks, by the way, are the ones who are driving this hysteria. Pete Peterson and his institute. Why? Because if Social Security gets privatized, you know, the, that $2.7 trillion in the Social Security Trust Fund, that suddenly becomes the property of the Wall Street banks. So, Got it. you know, that's the game behind the game, basically. But, you know, Obama almost did. I mean, Obama almost, you know, bought into this thing. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Yeah, it's just as usual, I'm listening as I, as I wait. And, and the little point I was going to make just gets... It, it, it gets expansive as I listen to you. You're so full of knowledge and, and wisdom, frankly. Provocative thinking. Okay, Socrates, you know, the thing there is Socrates was teaching the young people to be reasonable and logical. He was teaching people to argue, and he was 
teaching people the fine art of communicating and persuasion. And he was a threat to the authoritarians. He wasn't necessarily teaching respect for the law. It was made by authoritarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you're talking about, what you're talking about in terms of how our system of democracy has been undermined all these years, all our lifetime, undermined by authoritarian and authoritarian rule. And the Supreme Court has been taken over, if not always been a source of authoritarian rule. At some point in time, we're glad it's there because it can clarify things. And but, you know, the Supreme Court is, in fact, the least democratic of the three branches of yeah. government. I mean, you yeah. know, it's not it's not answerable to, to we the people in any way at all yeah. at any time. Right. No need for any Supreme Court other than a, a bunch of old guys who might be wise for all their years of uh, experience who might advise people in a bind. Other than that, got no use for the Supreme Court in a democratic society. So we've got way off the mark with the corporatization and homogenization of society to the yeah. point where we can't even really grow democracy from the ground up anymore. It's illegal. Well, it's not illegal. It's just really hard to do. I mean, you know, the, the, that, that's well, all the bad news. The good news is that four years ago, Bernie do. Sanders proved that you could have a people-powered campaign. And in this election cycle, you've got two solid candidates who are doing just exactly that. They're running people-powered campaigns, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And they're keeping up with everybody. I mean, they're raising more money than most of the other candidates. Yeah, the money is a real corrupting influence on the whole system, whether you like Bernie and Elizabeth or not, and I favor them, but we need more Socrates before they're all locked up. Yeah, I think we're still debating Socrates here, or still trying to figure it out. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. This is the bottom line. I mean, you know, if we don't do something about the Supreme Court writing these laws, which, by the way, they're not authorized to do by the Constitution. There's nowhere in the Constitution that it says that the Supreme Court can create law or doctrine. Nowhere. So the Supreme Court comes up with this idea of corporate personhood and puts it into law throughout the, uh, through the 18th century, or the 19th century, rather. And then in the 20th century, the Supreme Court comes up with this idea that billionaires owning politicians and then corporations owning politicians, that's just free speech. And until we take a meat axe to these two things, until we, until we can take down those decisions, we're not going to be a fully functioning democracy. Okay, the Fed just announced in another six or eight minutes, Chairman Powell will be holding a press conference, but they announced about 10, 15 minutes ago that they're dropping the top interest rate or the, the, you know, the, the main interest rate from 1.75% down to 1.5%, a 250 basis point drop or a quarter of a percentage point drop. In fact, here's the article right here. Thank you, Joyce. Growth in the third quarter has slipped to 1.9%. Back when Obama was president, we had a 1.9% quarter growth and Trump tweeted, oh my God, 1.9%. The economy's in big trouble. So I retweeted that this morning. So if you read my Twitter timeline, you can find that. But this underlies or underlines, I guess, a larger problem that has to do with money in the United States. And I wanted to riff about this a little bit. 67% of Americans feel that their finances have not improved since Donald Trump. 67%. That's pretty substantial. And meanwhile, Americans are loading up on subsistence death. This was in Axios this morning. Lower and middle income households in the United States are taking on more and more debt. And instead of the old fashioned way, which is home mortgages, credit cards, and car loans, which is traditionally how people take on debt and live beyond their means, frankly. What they're doing now, I realize you could, you could say mortgage debt is an exception to that, and that's, you know, it depends on how much it is, obviously. But certainly credit cards and car loans are symptoms of living beyond your means. Now what's happening is that people are taking out personal loans and using them to pay off their credit cards and their car loans. Because the credit cards are charging, you know, like 29%. You know, uh, it just, you know, obscene high interest rates. And so if you can get a loan, you know, a personal loan for, say, 13% or 15% or 10%, 
cool, pay off the other loans. But that's still, it, it still is, you know, when you add it up over the time period of the loan, and some of these are long-term loans, 10 and 20, sometimes even 30-year loans, you end up paying back two or sometimes three times what you borrowed. Personal loan balances rose to $308 billion in the second quarter of 2019, which was an increase of 12% over the previous year. Average personal loan balance, this from Axios, has risen to $16,259 per person. And that's average, which means some people have much larger personal loans, some much smaller. Balances of $30,000 or more have increased 15% compared to five years ago. Balances of twenty dollars to $25,000 have grown 10%. This is from Bloomberg. If the payday loan's target audience is the nation's poor, then the installment loan, which is what we're talking about here, is geared to all those working-class Americans who have seen their wages stagnate and unpaid bills pile up in the years since the Great Recession. In a span of just five years, online installment loans have gone from being a relatively niche offering to a red-hot industry. But these types of loans have more than, again, quoting from Experian, more than doubled their market share of unsecured personal loans from 22% of the marketplace in 2015. In other words, a little, a little less than a quarter of all loans were these unsecured personal loans in 2015 to now in 2019, they are half, 49.4%, half of all unsecured personal debt, which would include credit card debt. You know, car loans are secured, mortgages are secured, but I mean, this is, this is an amazing and should be very, very troubling trend. What it tells us is that while the stock market might be going up, while rich people might be getting richer, while wages might be going up on the top end of the scale, you know, 200,000 a year plus or 2 million a year plus, everything at the bottom end of the scale is collapsing right around us. And people are making up for it with debt, with personal loans and with credit cards, and it's gonna get worse. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.